So long and thanks for all the fish. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. 25 years of MAME. Steampunked perfection. If the cap wiki fits. Atari wants your help to locate a 2600 game developer. All these stories and a special guest this week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. This week, we're joined by a guest to bring us some extra insights from a different corner of the world. It's Dave. Welcome along, Dave. Thank you, Neil. Hello, everybody. And Dave, I don't like to make assumptions based on accents. Chris trips me up every week with his uh, faux Australian accent. So uh, are you, in actual fact, Dave, a Scottish? Yes, I am not a fake. Uh, I was made in Scotland from girders like Iron Brew, and I've been here ever since. Wonderful, wonderful. And why don't you just give us a bit of introdu uh, an introduction, because I can see you've clearly got a big box game collection behind you. I can see keyboards for those who are watching the video stream. Um, and also the back end of, is that Johnny, your cat there to your left? To yes, your right? that's Johnny. I say hello, Johnny. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell us about a bit about your interest in retro? So I am a retro collector, as you can see, and an enthusiast. I've been hanging around the RMC community for a few years now. I like big box, and I cannot lie. <laughs> and you can see loads of them behind me. I have a, a, a large collection. I'm a little bit addicted to buying them. Um, I'm a big DOS Atari ST and Amstrad CPC fan. Although I do appreciate the talents of the CPC, the Speccy, and even the Amiga, to name a few others. Even the Amiga, Chris, do you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's actually some good games on the Amiga. Oh, watch oh, it. I'm surprised. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, just, uh, just focusing on your corner of the world, Dave, what has Scotland ever done for us in the world of retro? <sighs> Not much, really. I mean, there's... Sinclair Spectrums for the Timex factory, so they were all made in Scotland. Uh, there's uh -huh. legions of IBMs from the IBM factory campus in Greenock. They had a huge, huge area. Um, Lemmings, Grand Theft Auto, and one of your favourites, Neil, Transport Tycoon. And sadly, and I do really mean sadly, every single comedy dwarf accent in <laughs> fantasy games. Yeah. Um, is it, you mentioned... Um... Grand Theft Auto, it's Rockstar are still based up there, aren't they? Rockstar North? Yeah, they're Ro Rockstar North, I think they're called. They're what used to be DMA Design, which That's were... That's right. Is that DMA Design? That's right. Um, Mike and so on. Um, they, uh, although Mike's not d d doing it all now, but um, yeah, they were they were based in Dundee, on the other side of Scotland from me. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, welcome along, Dave. I'm going to give you a bit of a quick-fire round of questions, just so you can very quickly introduce mm -hmm. yourself. One word answers, one word questions, all right? Question number one, which system? The Atari ST. Sorry, Get that's three out. words. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can't have it. <laughs> Question number two, which game? Ultima 5. Oh, oh okay. he's even Ultima just got the box ready. <laughs> what platform Fantastic. is that one for that you've got, Dave? That is for, of course, the Atari ST. Oh, points deducted. Carry on. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. And question number three, which joystick? It is, of course, the best retro joystick, the Zipstick. Oh, uh, he can stay, Neil. He can stay. He didn't yeah. say Competition Pro. He did say the right one, which is Zipstick. The Competition Pro is okay, but I had the Zipstick. I'm yeah, sure if I had the Competition same. Pro, I'd be seeing the Competition Pro. The Zipstick yeah. for Fantastic. people with square fingers. 
<laughs> oh dear well we're happy to have you aboard uh, for today dave um i hope you enjoy your, you your stay here and let's dive into our first story can you believe mame the multiple arcade machine emulator is 25 years old Launched on February the 5th, 1997, it now supports over 7,000 unique games. It started out life as a multi-Pac-Man game emulator to preserve that game's series specifically, but it soon began to grow into a much bigger beast. It certainly wasn't the first to offer support for multiple games within one emulator, but for whatever reason, good project management, the right people, the right choice of games to support in those early days, I can only guess it became the de facto standard for arcade machine emulation. It isn't always the first to support a specific platform, but MAME marches on relentlessly, and eventually progress is assimilated, I guess, into the project, and it becomes ever more powerful. Now, I can remember exactly when I discovered MAME. Uh, I was heavily into emulation in the late 90s and have been ever since and even before, uh, and into the early 2000s, but that period specifically was great because the family retired the 21-inch TV from the lounge, so Big telly, as I'd grown up to know it, had now been retired and was now my telly. Um, and it was even then a little bit obscene to have a 21-inch television in your bedroom. But uh, I hooked it up next to my computer. Um, the advent of um, 3D graphics cards and ever more powerful graphics cards meant that my one in particular at that time had an S-video output in addition to the usual VGA output. So I hooked that up to the television. And not all, but certain emulators would support different video outputs so um the neo geo ones in particular were great because i could fire the neo geo emulation over to that big crt and it was almost almost like being right there in the arcades which I, um yeah it, it was a hell of an experience back then i really enjoyed it the, the first time i got to enjoy arcade perfect versions of games at home now i downloaded mame on my dial-up connection back then i'd sometimes sneakily download roms on the college network allegedly and uh, i check news on websites like dave's video game classics and atmospheric heights do either of those two ring any bells to you guys did you go to those websites it wasn't my website despite the name <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i also used to listen a lot to a guy called shane r monroe he used to have retro gaming radio uh, a, a podcast although we probably didn't call them podcasts back then um hence in the name it even says radio and he would release them as mp3s um and he's still going actually um he's quite active on twitter is shane and, and still representing the retro community and in a funny way i'm a bit nostalgic for all of that now um I, I still love exploring emulators but that period of discovery leading up to mame when i was first trying out all of these emulators um anything that i could get my hands on to play games like track and field and um juno first i used to play a lot on robotron and um it was just really exciting to see each update come out for mame and uh you know the readme file with the updates which i would read um as quickly as i could to see which new games were supported on this release what could i play now you know uh, it was an exciting time and i can't remember the last time i actually dived into a mame update to see what was new um it's all got a bit normalized and you just kind of assume everything's going to appear in mame now um, but as a measure of just how much I loved MAME, I chose to give a presentation on it. In um, It would have been around 1998 uh, at a business communications lecture at college. We had to pick any topic to talk about uh, for, I think, about half an hour. So I chose MAME and um, it was met with enthusiasm by my fellow nerds. For others, they just looked at me like I was completely mad. 
But uh, it went down well, and um, I was pleased to do my very, very small part to introduce some more people to MAME in those early days. Um, and uh, I've, I've loved it ever since. Um, how about you guys? Do you have any MAME origin stories? How did you first discover it? <laughs> how are we so alike, Neil? I gave a presentation about simulation in education a couple oh, really? of years back and referenced <laughs> F-16 Combat Pilot, among other games. Um, I was met with blank stares, of course. Uh, but anyway, um, we're talking about MAME today, not not the flight sims. Um, but yeah, uh, my only real active use of MAME was at a mate's house. So we're going around for dinner and he'd built one of those tabletop um, arcades, built it himself um, with a PC inside running MAME, had probably about 200 games on it um and from that day i've had nothing but well-intended plans to build my own one <laughs> how far have i got well i've installed mame on an old laptop about three years ago and i installed launchbox free edition on top of that and that's it um so i'm now planning plans change this is why i don't bother doing them because they change over time um but i've got a plan in my garage to actually build some uh, full height arcade units but actually build them into the wall because with flat screens and a pi 4 is what i'm thinking of for the brains um they don't have to encroach into the floor space of the garage as much so that's my master plan so they'll still look what like you a full to... height arcade yeah so you're hoping to kind of get yeah. the look but without yeah. the depth yeah, that's right. So you have that. the overhang at the top with the light, and you have yeah, the you joystick hang panel. It on the wall, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you're, you're facing it, it'll look like the real thing, but not from the side. Exactly. Yeah, safe space um, idea. You know, it's yeah. it's a difficult business to get that balance right. You know, we've seen like companies like Arcade One Up put out machines, and if, if they don't look quite right to us old schoolers, it really sticks, doesn't <laughs> it? It really does. Um, let's yeah. be honest though so, your your mate that you said made a tabletop i know he's your mate but be yeah. brutally honest was it a good tabletop or was it a, one of the, a horrible diy job no actually this was really good he's a kind of guy that didn't do things by half so it was a really polished job um awesome. the bit that wasn't as polished was actually funny enough the running of the pc that's where he was running into uh, trouble because that wasn't his forte um but yeah making the actual tabletop itself look good and and present well was was done really well yeah so anyway one day i'll build my garage arcade unless i get tempted into just buying full arcade units you never know um what about yourself dave well i first came across mame uh, back in the late 90s when it was fairly new i was chatting to a guy on a mud which is a multi-user dungeon it's a an online kind of text adventure role-playing game and he was involved with a bit of software called mge I don't know if he was the author. It's, I mean, it's 25 years ago, so I can't remember whether it was the author. I think he was. MGE is multi-gauntlet emulator, so probably along the same lines as the multi-Pac-Man emulator. And I played that. It's the first emulation I did that I can remember. And I played Gauntlet 2 on that, and I remember on my own computer seeing the the, the title screen coming on and that, that iconic music and the, the thump as it comes on the screen and that, that it's just magic. Um, seeing a real arcade game playing on your computer is just it just blew me away um mge i presume was incorporated into mame i mean mame does did quickly have a, a gauntlet core so i'm presuming that's what went into mame i don't really know um i ended up having the, the complete rom set and i kept the utilities going to keep it up to date and to tell me which files are missing i don't know if you remember CRA, cr clr mame pro Mm -hmm. A little bit of software that told you which ones you had to go and hunt down and missing. I really don't miss that. Uh, but the funny thing is that I'm thinking about it. It's now 25 years since MAME. 
and Gauntlet 2 was 1986. So if MAME was doing things that are 12 or 13 years old at the end of the 90s, and we're now 25 years beyond that, does that make it triple retro now? <laughs> um, I'm not going to say the word vintage, and I'm not going to send everybody <laughs> off in one again. Yeah, it's like it's like those things people say, like the, the, the difference between, oh, the moon landings happened, the time between then and, you know, then and, yeah. you know what I mean. You know what I mean. It's like that with MAME now. It's, it's, it's double retro, triple retro. Yeah. Uh, what about games specifically? Um, what are your go-to MAME games? Do you have any favorites on your lists, uh, Chris? Yeah, whenever I'm at a machine with, you know, emulation that's got hundreds and hundreds of games, the first one I look for is always OutRun. I don't know why, because generally there's not a steering wheel attached. Um, but, um, yeah, it's the first one I go to, usually closely followed by Street Fighter 2, uh, you know, before checking whether or not I've got enough fire buns. Dave? <laughs> um, 1942, Black Tiger, uh, the Capcom Brawlers, and Puzzle Bobble. Hmm. Those are all the games I played in the arcades. 1942 is a really simple shooter, but I think it's really well done. I don't I don't tend to like the bullet hell shooters. I think I like the simpler, earlier ones. Hmm. Um, and it always feels like my fault when I die. Um, Black Tiger is a platforming game with mild RPG elements. And the Capcom Brawlers, I think, are always overshadowed by the Street Fighter 2 games, which I'm not that keen on. I, I love this, the Capcom Brawler. I'm sure Street Fighter is a great game, but I, I don't enjoy it that much. And Puzzle Bobble, I remember playing during the daytime for two weeks in Cavos in Greece when I was on a, a Club 1830 holiday, dealing with my hangovers <laughs> during the daytime. I played that all day. I can uh, I can instantly hear the music from Puzzle Bobble and all the sound effects. As soon as you say the name, I can hear it. It's such a great game. Um, on OutRun, I think the steering wheel to joystick code works pretty well in MAME, um, to be honest. I've mm. had a lot of fun with it. Uh, um, I've completed OutRun on pretty much every level on the easy dip switch setting on the easy that's very important <laughs> i haven't progressed much past <laughs> the normal mode but it always feels with the joystick steering that it's almost like a digital left or right you know the, the, there's yeah, no true. real analog control i don't think and your understeer or oversteer is only really affected by your speed so i think it works fine with the joystick um personally i quite like a blast of um is it mille milia i think that's how you say it which is on the neo geo and it's like an isometric classic car racing game uh, there was another game called neo drift out which was rally rally driving in the same style but this is uh, old-fashioned ferraris and lamborghinis and alfa romeos and things great fun uh, i i also like the side-scrolling capcom beat-em-ups like dave like final fight Personally, Final Fight is my choice because I've just got very fond memories of playing it down my local video shop, video rental shop. They used to have a cabinet there. Uh, they had Final Fight, uh, Iron Man's Super Off-Road, Mortal Kombat, no, not Mortal Kombat, because that would have been good. Pit Fighter, Pit Fighter. Um, and I think that was it. I think that was all the games they had there. So Final Fight was the one that I always went for out of those. Yeah, but coming back to the story, 25 years, though. 25 years is an impressive feat for MAME. It continues to be the standard for software emulators on your arcades. And when new emulators do arrive um, to support slightly newer systems or, you know, encryption, for example, has to be cracked before these things can go into the systems. I know that was a big thing was with, um, was it CPS2? They had to get over the the encryption and the suicide cartridges and things yeah. like that. Um, so eventually they make their way into MAME and uh, it's always exciting to see what will appear next. 
And um, with the job that MAME does of preserving those classic video games experiences, I can see no good reason why it wouldn't still be around in another 25 years or 100 years, really. I mean, it's open. It's adapted to pretty much every platform out there. There's no reason why it can't go on and on and on. Um, unless we get to the point where AI comes along and you just say, see that classic arcade game over there? Make a perfect version of it. Maybe we'll get to that one day, but... Until then, it's going to be MAME all the way, I think. So uh, from all of us here, a very happy birthday to MAME. Well, guys, last week we had steamed hams, and now this week we're on to steamed Amigas, or should I say steampunked Amigas anyway. This story was shared by, well, actually, Neil, it's it's my turn. It was shared by me um, <laughs> under my, my, my name, 005 Agima. Um, but full disclosure, I did wait to see if it got upvoted before choosing to put it in for this week, and sure enough, it did, so... That's fine. Uh, it seems quite a few people did like the post, which is about a steampunk Amiga 500 made by YouTuber Retro Gadget Man. The Amiga, once you realise that actually, yes, that is what it is under all the brass and pipework and granite, um, there is actually an Amiga 500 lurking in there. It's fully working and ready to go. Before I go on to describe this thing, are you guys into case modding your machines or is Stock Factory Mint the Holy Grail or do you steampunk at all? Is that your thing you're into? I, I have never knowingly steampunked, Chris. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I first saw this mod in particular, the first thing I thought was, oh, it's one of those bad dog design inventions, which I always like. But um, actually, it's a completely different inventor. So um, steampunk obviously has a, a lot of uh, inventors in its midst who like to do this kind of thing. Uh, and it's mad, isn't it? I, I really like the level of detail that's gone into this one, right down to the, I don't know if you saw in the video, the steampunk tank mouse. I didn't even realize it was a mouse until he turned it over and you saw that the laser was there. Um, and uh, it looks like he started off with a pretty yellowed, uh, pretty average middle-of-the-road Amiga 500. Um, obviously, it needed some work to make it look its, its best if it was ever going to look good again. And while I don't think he shows us the inside, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he shows us the inside of the whole thing on the video. No. Um, I imagine it's done in such a way that you could just lift the board out. I mean, the Amiga 500 is essentially a big single board computer, isn't it? So surely he can just lift it out and return it to the case. So it doesn't appear to be on the face of it a destructive mod of any kind. And um, <clears throat> it's the kind of thing I can really see being wheeled out because you wouldn't want to carry this thing. It's that big. I can see it being wheeled out at Expos. It would make a really good centerpiece, a talking point. It could probably spark some inspiration in others to try their own things. Whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know, because they might go off and destroy their own Amigas. But um, I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. I, I like it for that reason. How about you, Dave? I'm not really into modifying original cases unless there's a good reason. So neatly cutting out a hole at the back with a stepping drill bit to put a toss switcher or something is fine for common machines like a 520 ST or whatever. When it, when it comes to the rare stuff like Falcons or Sam Coupes, I couldn't even bear to watch. Um, there really is a beauty in seeing the machines as they were made to be, especially with all the peripherals together. Um, I mean, this week I took ownership of a Commodore 1701 monitor, which is the one in the same styling as the C64 bread bin. So oh, when you nice. see that paired up with a bread bin and the matching disk drive, the 1541 all themed together, it, it looks just great. So I'm not not too keen on on modifying or or, or, or damaging that. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm not one for case modding at all. Um, and I have to confess, steampunk is not something I'm into at all. Um, steampunk, if you're not familiar with it, as RGM explains in the video, is essentially an alternate reality where modern items are aesthetically, at least, reimagined using things from the Victorian era or the 19th century. Um, I hope I've got that right anyway, because that's just me paraphrasing. Mm. Um, I always... So this, um, when I think Go steampunk, on. I always think chaos engine. I mean, it's a crime. Yes. If he hasn't called this Amiga the chaos engine, it's a crime. That would be perfect, I, I think, wouldn't it? I think steampunk is kind of an alternative future from the past, as if as if we we didn't go beyond um, brass and gears and steam from the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. That's how I'd always thought of, thought of it until I heard his description. But yeah, <laughs> what do we know? We're not <laughs> steampunkers. <laughs> but yeah, so this steampunk Amiga then, this Amiga 500, um, how to describe it to those listening on the podcast. Up front uh, and surrounded in what looks like brass pipework is the keyboard with vintage-style round keys, mostly in black, with some of the extra keys blanked off in brass. Behind that, the machine itself appears to be enshrouded in an ornate dark wooden box with brass trimmings on the corners and custom plaques adorning the front um, and those plaques uh, hosting the Amiga logo and things like that. On top of that sits some brass columns, lots of brass, um, which hold up a granite plinth, uh, which in turn holds up a Commodore PET-inspired built-in monochrome display. To the left and right, a series of brass trumpets point upwards and actually act as resonators for the hidden speakers. So the machine is powered on uh, by the flick of a nice silver lever switch that not only fires the machine up into the Kickstart 1.3 prompt, but also activates this nice big round center stage uh, voltmeter, which leaps satisfyingly to the right to show maximum voltage. Its creator makes mention that, that he was careful to ensure that this is all fully reversible. So that's what you were saying, Neil. He could act easily transpose all the actual Amiga components back into the original case. Um, as I mentioned, steampunk isn't my thing. In fact, any form of case modding isn't really my thing at all. But I'm in love with this machine. He's done such a <laughs> stunning job. Yeah, yeah. You better get used to case modding. If you're going to build yourself an arcade, you know, to hang in your garage, you better get used to the, the skills and techniques that you need to do. Maybe not so much brass or trumpets needed. but um... <laughs> Trumpets? <laughs> um, but yeah, the thing I really like about this is the attention to detail. And it's not just like you mentioned the trumpets it's not just here's a trumpet for the sake of it because it looks a bit steampunky that's actually part of the speaker um and there are also these little touches like there's this little um slip of paper that's got a list of games written out on a typewriter looks completely you know lovely and victorian and and aged and it's in a little wooden frame and then he pulls out this wooden box it looks kind of like a cigar box you open it up and there's all these little things that you can take out. I'm guessing they're USB sticks made to look a bit steampunky. And I'm guessing that they go into a GoTech floppy drive. I think that's what happens. So you take this thing out of this lovely wooden box, put it in the side, and the game will load up. I think he's got the GoTech. Yeah, it must be a GoTech because it makes kind of floppy disk sounds when it loads. And it loads at about normal floppy disk speed. It's not accelerated in any way which is fine. If you're going to go to all the effort of making this great big steampunk thing, you have to have the drama of the load times and everything that goes with it. There's no point trying to accelerate it, you know, put a 68030 in this thing or anything like that. 
it is what it is. Just enjoy it. So it's the attention to detail that I really love about it. You mentioned the amp meter. Um, I said about the, the, the tank mouse, which is so lovely. It's just all the trinkets around it and all the other bits and bobs. And there's a second display. Uh, you mentioned that it looked like the pet, Commodore pet on the top, which it absolutely does. I'm sure it draws inspiration from that in that kind of, it's, it's like a pyramid with a square top, isn't it? And then um, he's got this second monitor. So I think the main screen, which is tiny, is black and white. And then there's this whole second screen, which is fully steampunked up as well. It's not an afterthought at all, which he plugs in to get a nice big color screen. So it's just a, it's just a monumentous thing, isn't it? It's just a lovely thing to behold. Yeah. Cool. Um, I have to say, this actually sent me down an algorithm rabbit hole, and I came across uh, several really nice steampunk retro computer builds, actually, including this astonishing printer setup uh, that actually moves like an automated typewriter. And I don't mean a modern automatic typewriter, um, the old hammer type, and, and including when it was doing shift characters, the whole thing edging, um, pivoting up um, for the for the uppercase. Uh, but it's running, it's doing the job of a printer. So I can't even get my head around it. You have to have a look. That's by YouTuber Herger. Um, have you guys seen any other interesting steampunk builds or any theme builds for that matter? I, I like the steampunk aesthetic, but where it usually falls down for me is in function. So unless there's a functional reason for the steampunk part of it, then I can't really come to terms with it. So a steampunk item, which is just the normal item with some brass gears and pipes glued on, does nothing for me. Um, this particular build, though, is pretty good by my reckoning. I think most of what he's done, um, that I, I can't see anything that's not, is, is all functional. So he's built it from the ground up rather than just gluing stuff onto a case. The Commodore pet styling he's intentionally going for is really good. I like the power and dislikes. All of the brass plaques that I can see are tastefully done with a steampunk aesthetic, but they've got a reason to be there. I do wish this, the central screen was a bit bigger, and I, I think he should have been playing Chaos Engine, mm. <laughs> as Neil said. Two for uh, Chaos I, I like the trumpets. trumpets. <laughs> the trumpets. Everyone loves the trumpets. Um, yeah, on the subject of other um, builds that I've come across, I mentioned the uh, Bad Dog Design one um, earlier. So they've done several but the one that stands out for me is their commodore 64 build like a portable commodore 64 in this beautiful mahogany case with lots of brass and uh, i think we talked about it on the show last year at some point with john um a real highlight for that was a joystick that came with it that's full of cogs and it's got an auto fire and when you switch on all the cogs spin and it physically slaps the micro switch you can see it through a little window as the cogs spin it sort of Ding, 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 hitting the micro switch is a really nice thing. So again, form and function, when they come together, that's that's perfect for any mod. If it's, if it's just form or it's just function, it can look nice and it can work well. But when they come together, that's when the magic really happens. Um, but yeah, uh, Dave, not so much into steampunk by the sounds of it. So maybe he needs less steam and just more punk, maybe a, a graffiti styled build you know if you've got a super yellow case like that a500 was maybe some street art have you have you got any street art and i, I can see you haven't got the mohawk dave but what were your graffiti skills like <laughs> trumpets trumpets, <laughs> trumpets. <laughs> just trumpets uh, on everything cool. yeah 
Well, we'll of course put the links in the show notes. Uh, even if steampunk isn't your thing, please do check out the steampunk A500 video because it's fantastic. It's a great build, which RGM details very well, and he doesn't shy away from potential improvements either. It's certainly getting lots of attention, and I suspect Retro Gadget Man's channel is about to go full steam ahead. Here's a story that excites me this week. It was kindly submitted to our subreddit by Croak Carmen. It's a new initiative launched by Shelby over on the YouTube channel Tech Tangents. And it's all about a website called caps.wiki. The name caps as in capacitors, and it has a classic wiki look to the website. It's nice and clear to navigate and search. And the idea is that this is a one-stop shop to look up a device and get all of the repair information that you might need for your classic devices. And it's got some really useful uh, features in there, as as um, Shelby explains on his. He did a little launch video. It, it is it's certainly early days, but he goes into some detail as to what it does now and what he intends it to do in the future. And um, its usefulness, of course, is is only going to be as good as the contributions made to it. But the idea is certainly very sound on on the surface. So, for example, for each device, there'll be a clear list of all of the original capacitors that the device came with at the time, as well as an alternative list of compatible capacitors um, that, are, that are more readily available in the modern day, because sometimes you just can't get hold of the, those old ones. And you need to be, make sure that you've got things like the size and the shape of it, um, not just the capacitance and all of that stuff. You want to make sure it will actually physically fit in the space that you've got. And this will do that. It will make sure you've got a list that is uh, managed by the community to ensure that you get the right things and can get yourself back up and running quickly. Each capacitor also has links to distributors um, such as Farnell, Mouser, and DigiKey on there. And uh, I'm sure it won't just be capacitors. You know, there'll be resistors. There'll be um, you know anything and everything else that you might need um, to get things up and running again. It also makes allowances for devices with different revision boards and components. So, for example, the Commodore 64 and its various revisions is cited as an example in the announcement video. And there are tutorial pages, aside from just lists and lists of parts that you might need, there are some really nice tutorial pages to learn about the different types of capacitors, how to measure them, the tools that you might need, um, how to use those tools, really, you know, from the basics upwards to really get you up and running with this kind of stuff. And um, pretty much everything that, that a retro enthusiast like you are listening, I'm sure, might want to know to tackle some of the most common repairs that we need to do to keep our old kit working so um it's a, a good investment in your time i think to pick up some of this information so it's new like i said it'll only be as good as the information that goes into it but i really do like the idea and it's uh, it's one of those ideas that makes you go why didn't this exist before what do you guys think um Maybe it's a cynic in me, but the very first thing I thought, and Shelby actually does address it in the video, I was reminded about an XKCD comic number 927, which says the situation is there are 14 competing standards. So let's develop one universal standard that covers everybody needs. And then the end result is situation, there are now 15 competing standards. <laughs> and my, 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 my worry was... Is he going to create just another place for us to, to have to go and look for everything in there? But I've been a patron of Tech Tangents for a while and I've chatted with Shelby a bit and I think he's really driven and if anyone can make it work, he'll make it work. Um, he has, he's not just thrown together a wiki and said go and add your own stuff onto it. He's done a lot more. Uh, he will, he will 
do it in an intelligent way. He'll create tutorials and tools and templates and all this stuff to try and make it easier for people to update. And obviously that's going to be the, the difficult part. You have to get the balance between putting rules in place so that people don't just put a load of rubbish on there, but also keeping it open and inviting people and making it welcoming for people to, to encourage to go in and add there. Um, so I think we're all guilty of chatting in forums and discords and whatever to help fix a problem we might come across right up to the point where we fix it and then we perhaps don't come back and document it afterwards so will rmc commit to updating this wiki as part of future <laughs> trash to treasures oh, will you and will spot. you will you encourage others to do the same as well neil put me on the spot it's not a bad idea yeah. um uh, as you've just described i find that i barely have enough time to edit and release videos let alone document the process heavily beyond what you see in the video but I'm hoping as the cave opens to the public, and that, that is now happening in March, we'll talk about that more uh, maybe next week uh, as the tickets go up. Um, so we're nearly there at the point of opening, and I'm hoping that it might attract some volunteers to help out on that repair side of things. I'm sure Shelby's given this a lot of thought, but he's committing himself to a huge amount of work here. You mentioned that there are other places that exist. A lot of those places are forums. And um, if you're going to be a forum admin or a Discord admin, you've got to be there 24-7 keeping an eye on things. You've got to have a trusted team of people to make that work. And you've got to be sifting through that information at le a lot, at least um, at the start of this thing, because if it does really well, the community will start to self-police itself and weed out any problems and things like that. But for it to build up that community, it has to be a quality place to visit in the first place. So it has to attract quality people. And that's going to take a huge amount of work. So I'm sure he's given it the thought that's needed to go into this. And I'm sure he'll be fully committed to making that happen. And yes, I'll do I'll do my bit to spread the word. Um, uh, but, but coming back to my own personal circumstances, I'm hoping that when we get some more volunteers here to help with the repair side of things, uh, and the museum is open and there will be a lot more maintenance needed to keep things going here, then it will be in my interest as much as the interest of helping others to get that information documented. And what better place to document it than on his website rather than on an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Doc that only I have access to. So yeah, if this thing takes off, this will be my go-to place to put all that information. I think I'll certainly contribute for sure. Yeah, I watched the video about this the other day and it sounds really promising. And he mentioned even things like drive belt sizes for tape decks and things like that and goes on to talk about it doesn't have to just be computers. This could go on to be bigger than than that and, and be uh, a way of looking at information to repair almost any device um, that's in need of that kind of maintenance. So it could you know really go outside of our vintage computer niche. I've got to be honest, I'm not yet brave enough to go recapping things, um, but I'll happily open up a tape deck and go poking around, put it back together, find I've got one screw left over and find that the thing works again anyway. <laughs> Don't be a coward. Honestly, it's easier than, you, easier than you think to recap things. Don't be a coward. Yeah, <laughs> easy. Yeah. It is. It is. Oh, we just called a, a coward by the, the, the a, a dwarf that's come out of the, the dungeon there from his mud. <laughs> You little coward! <laughs> just, going, just going back, Dave. I, I, I meant to mention this earlier. When you were a mud player, did you role play as a yeah. dwarf? Uh, I had a dwarf character at one point, <laughs> but I never, I never did the whole translating it into full Scottish speak. I, I, I was never into that for the role playing side of things. Um, I, I, I was more about stats and min max and, and finishing things and being a powerful character and killing people. 
well, I've taken us off on a wild, uh, a wild tech tangent there. Let's come back onto the story. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, on the subject of repairing things yourself, Chris, it is surprisingly, uh, I wouldn't say easy, but it's surprising how quick you can get up to speed on, you know, get, getting used to a soldering iron and replacing caps, yeah. whether it's through hole or surface mounted. Get a few scrap boards. Um, as Dave says, don't be a coward. Get stuck in and, and you'll be up and running soon. But uh, be sure to check out Text Tangent's introduction video. Um, Dave, you were, I think you have mentioned there was a, an update just before we started the show to me. Is that right? Yeah. So just um, before we recorded, there was a new video released. It's called Caps Wiki Tips, Guidelines and Recommendations. And Shelby's gone into more detail about the templates and documentation he's produced to make it easier to contribute to the wiki. So this is what I, I mentioned in part of what I was saying. It's not just a blank page where he's asking you to put stuff in there. There's templates on there. He'll have he'll have um, technology in there to try and uh, to try and make it easier to update this wiki. To, so it's not just a, a notepad file. So it's something a bit more intelligent and functional and, uh, and efficient. Yeah, um, yeah. His channel's great though. He's got he's got loads of stuff on DOS. Um, getting a great detail. So it's definitely worth watching these videos. But I, I hope the wiki ends up being as you described, Neil. I hope it ends up being the de facto resource to go yeah. check things yeah so the, the intention behind it is sound the usefulness of it is sound and there's a real buzz about it um i think so uh it, now is the perfect time to get involved this is this is could be the start of something great and it'd be nice to be there from the beginning so dig out your old capacitor lists go and get involved um add a bit of information there doesn't matter how small just a little bit added it all adds up and hopefully this will turn into something great guys important question do you remember specifically what you were doing in 1982 or 1983? Uh, I was a kid. I was very much a kid in 83, 84. Um, my first Amstrad came along in 1985. I think it was Christmas of 85, so pretty much 86. So, um, you know, life hadn't really started for me yet. I hadn't got my first computer. Yeah. How about you, Dave? Um, back then it would be fighting fantasy books. I was so heavily into those in 82 and 83. The whole country was, they were great. And I didn't get my first micro again, like you, Neil, until Christmas 1985. Although I did get a better one than you. I get the 6128. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So neither of you were working for Atari then, developing games. Acroventure, Acro to be specific. No, it no, wasn't, wasn't you. Okay, well, that's another dead end then. Um, it seems not even Atari, or the current custodians of the brand, know who developed the game for the Atari 2600. According to the story shared with us by Reddit user Starcade2084, Atari are asking the gaming community for help in searching for the game's original developer. The story on VentureBeat details uh, how the game was originally unearthed in the form of a prototype that was discovered in a flea market and has passed the hands of several owners, possibly being cloned, who knows, because other copies have emerged, but usually with the same serial number. And it's also been included on some of the flashback consoles. But apparently Atari are preparing to do a physical release. So I'm assuming they're wanting to credit the developer. So back in the 80s, apparently, the devs weren't listed in the credits of a game, and this was to stop them getting poached by other companies, which is a bit of a far cry from the credits of games that we see today that feel longer than those of a movie. Um, have you guys played this game at all? I played it for a few minutes. Um, it's a flip screen scrolling shooter game. 
think maybe in the style of Wizard's Lair or Attack Attack, you swim down, you pick up treasure, you avoid and shoot fish. Um, there's a bit of strategy in whether you should shoot the fish or not because they, they're then replaced with faster fish. So you want to avoid the fish where you can and then come back up before your air runs out. I think it's pretty good. Um, it's a bit basic for my tastes, um, but for a 2600 game, it looks good, it sounds good, and it plays decent. Hmm. Um, uh, just going back to, you mentioned that game developers weren't credited back then. I, I think specifically in the Atari circles, that, that was probably the case yeah. because of the whole situation with uh, was it Activision that broke away from Atari and took all the developers. So it, it wasn't across the board, but I can understand it in the, in the 2600 scene. Um, so yeah, obviously they haven't, they haven't put the developers' names on there for whatever reason there. Uh, I haven't tried this game, I'm afraid. But what I will say is, is it me or did a lot of the games in the 80s involve shooting fish? And what did they ever do to deserve it? <laughs> Trust me, Neil, everything in the ocean is out to kill you. Well, anyway, <laughs> you first know. ask questions later. <laughs> I seriously did move to the wrong country, guys. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I was delighted to find that this game is actually in the main menu of my Flashback 9. So that gave me some playtime. Uh, and I instantly liked it. There's plenty, uh, there's, there's a purity about the game. Um, it's just so simple. There's no instructions needed. There's no tutorial. You work it out within seconds. It's just instant fun. And I personally found, I think I played it for longer than, than yourself, um, Dave, I, I found that there was this instant drive to just keep going and going, try and last that little bit longer, get one level higher, get that score that little bit higher. Um, but as you also said, it, it, it looks and sounds okay for a 2600 game. And you even get brought up to air when you go up, the, up when you finish the level and you have to go up for your air. You actually get brought up for air by a mermaid at the end of each level. So that gets extra points from me. Um, but as mentioned, there's a search on for the original developer. It's, I, I'm, I'm worrying about your mermaid fetishism going on here, Chris. Have you got a bit of a thing for mermaids? Extra points no, no, no. for a mermaid? <laughs> Look, it's it's just a female love interest, Neil. The fins are optional. <laughs> last um, last week, you um, you played uh, Rick Dangerous for the first time, uh, yeah. and you didn't speak that highly about it. But you're you you're almost raving about this game. This one better for it's, you than Rick Dangerous, would you say? It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I just love the simplicity, like I said. And funnily enough, I don't know why every, everything at the moment is reminding me of Hero, um, but this does feel very similar to Hero in the way that you go down. I was hoping that as the levels, levels progressed, it would be more than just going down further and further into a completely vertical cavern underwater. But it's not. It just appears to just go down and down and down. The higher the level, the more caverns you go down. But there's no across, as it were. There's no left and right to it. But yeah, I, I actually had fun. Like I said, I just love the simplicity of games like this. It's a game you can switch on and you can play it for five minutes or, well, I wouldn't say five hours, but you could play it for an hour. Um, whereas games today, for instance, I went to get back into Wolfenstein and New Order yesterday, a game I'm probably about halfway through and have been for over probably three or four years because each time I turn it on, I've got to make a real time investment to progress these kind of games don't require that at all <laughs> it's instant fun or it's instant boredom and you move on so yeah i like it <laughs> so so anyway to the listeners if you or a friend or family member look suspiciously like an 80s atari developer uh, who may or may not have worked on the game aquaventure let us know in the subreddit or better yet tell atari they're waiting for your call 
It's time now for our community question of the week from last week. Uh, if you want to participate in our weekly question, head over to our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. And that's also the place to submit any new stories that you might want us to chat about on the show. So community question of the week from last week was, uh, we, we said that this week, last week, we took a look at uh, a short Simpsons point and click game in the style of an old LucasArts games. And that was the, uh, the steamed ham game that we talked about. And we wanted to know what was your favorite adventure game. This could be point and click, text adventure, dungeon crawler, Zelda style. If you feel like you're adventuring, it doesn't matter how it's done on the screen. It's an adventure game. So what was your favorite? What did you love about it? Did it whisk you away to a magical land? And did it totally immerse you? Tell us all about it. So um, Chris, do you want to go with the top answer? Yep. So this one was posted by Shishakli, and I do apologize if I butchered your name. Uh, likely an unpopular choice, he says, but Quest for Glory, the mixing of RPG elements in a colorful mythological fantasy setting was just the perfect combination for me. The music, Aaron's Peace Forever, and dithered EGA art were top notch, and the adventure with multiple endings was very satisfying as was eventually having a super overpowered character that could take anything on in the game uh, anything on that the game threw at you then being able to carry your character over to the next game was the icing on the cake i've never played this game myself guys but uh, that idea of carrying a character over that you've built up from one game to the next that sounds fantastic have you guys played yeah. this at all no it's one of those games that i keep meaning to sit down and play through but i do remember the advertising very distinctly where where it talked about certain rpg like elements and stats that came with the character i don't remember the bit about being able to carry your character over to another game um but i do remember it had a different name originally it was called hero or hero's quest uh, it even Heroes, got, Quest, Heroes right. Quest. It even got published with it on the box. You can find a few copies floating around on eBay. Uh, but then there was a, a copyright claim came about. Uh, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing it's probably linked to that board game, Hero mm. Quest. Heroes yes. Quest. Yeah. So they they said, "Hang on a minute. We do a fantasy role playing adventure game over here. It may be a board game, but yours is a fantasy role playing adventure game over there. So uh, no, that ain't happening. So they had to quickly change the name and uh hero's quest made more sense because it tied in with police quest and space quest and all of the other quest series so quest for glory having quest in the wrong place in the title it, it, it almost separated it didn't it? it made it seem like something a bit different um almost made you a bit suspicious about it i don't know how do you feel about that dave <laughs> Um, they can maybe call it Fantasy Quest or something like that, just so that it paired up with it. it. Nobody said it yet. This is a Sierra game, so they had they had King's Quest and Police mm. Quest, so that this would have been the um, Heroes Quest or uh, Fantasy Quest or something like that. So yeah, it would have paired up with the the other games. But they they'd did. have to. I've not. They'd have to separate it somehow from King's Quest because that was kind of the fantasy one, wasn't it? So how know, how would you make that distinction? Yeah. Maybe that's where they couldn't find a better name than. Yeah. Um, Quest for Glory. Have you played it, Dave? No, it's one of those games. I, I, it was around before I moved to PC, so I, I never, I never played it. It's one of those games I, I mean to get to. It sounds to be right in my wheelhouse, though. Mm -hmm. Adventure and RPG mixed together, carrying your character through the diff various different games in it. Yeah, it, 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 I will get to it eventually. Yeah, excellent. Okay, um, our second answer, Dave. Do you want to read that one out for us? 
Yeah, so this is from Mr. Costardo, and I'm not going to attempt to replicate his wonderful accent. <laughs> um, Costardo says, um, that has to be Day the Tentacle. He says, I bought the talkie version together with uh, Mitsumi single-speed CD-ROM. It was an amazing experience coming from an Atari ST just the year before. This felt like the next generation in gaming. It's one of the milestone titles in my gaming career and one of the few adventure games that I played start to finish together with Sam and Max and Grim Fandango. Um, and if I remember right, this is the first time LucasArts did a fully voice game from release. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, or 10 people will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I think this is the first time they fully voiced it, and I think they nailed it. We've all heard bad voice acting, and the 90s were chock full of it, particularly <laughs> in the CD era with FMV. Yeah. Um, really bad acting from the people who made the game quite often would dress up and oh um, but this they, they really got it spot on with this yeah. um, I played it through it was a floppy version I paid, played through so you just got subtitles uh, but I played it through again when I got hold of the voice version I, I thought it was a fantastic game they got the, the balance of difficulty on the puzzles bang on um, this is when LucasArts were really hitting their stride they got Monkey Island and Loom and then Monkey Island I think Monkey Island 2 came out before this and this is when they're really hitting their stride and this was a really popular game everybody played it um, as for the remastered versions I actually prefer the originals but this is a great game it's a brilliant pick from Costardo I've not played Did the remastered version of Day of the Tentacle uh, but back in the day it was the first CD-ROM based adventure game that I bought when I moved to PC so uh, like Costardo, I, I'd come from Amiga to PC and I was just wowed. It was like, this is like a cartoon on my screen. 256 colors, talky voices. I had a dual speed CD-ROM drive, so I was enjoying that a little bit quicker than Costardo. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just blown away by it. Um, I think you're probably right that it was their first talky. I know there were talky versions of Maniac Mansion on things like the FM Towns, but they would have been third-party kind of ports. That would have been a first-party LucasArts thing. So I think this is perhaps the first one to come out of the stable, but I'd be interested if someone can correct us if that's wrong. And the voice acting was great. Um, the characters were lovable, you know, even Purple Tentacle you, you liked. Um, <laughs> and that Everybody intro, that intro was just brilliant. You know, you could put that intro on in uh, a high street computer shop all day long and people would go, yeah, I want one of them. I want one of them. Uh, even with things like the CDI and the CD32 next to it, you know, that were supposedly multimedia-based machines, nah, this, this thing would blow them all away. Yeah. Chris, do you have good memories of Day of the Tentacle? Is this where you tell no. us you've never played it? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a really short episode one week. The games that Chris has played. Games Chris has played. <laughs> You're missing out on this. It's it's wonderful. It really I'll, is wonderful. I'll have to give it a go. Is it on GOG? I assume it's on GOG or somewhere. It, oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. There must be a million ways to play it. A, yeah, a really yeah. nice element of it is there's three main characters. Um, is it Hoagie, Laverne? Who's the other one? The other one. And the other, the other one. one. And uh, you yeah. kind of switch between the characters as you're playing. So you get an element okay. of each of their storylines. and yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But they interact as well. So you'll do something as one character and it'll affect what happens through time travel and the other. It's great. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I was discussing with Dave before we started, Neil, and um, a a little bit about what we talked about last week. I don't know why, but points and clicks, just I just skated right over them. I just went from text adventures to let's just get full into arcade action and flight sims and nothing else. (laughs) You need to pull yourself a nice big cider because I know you like your cider and uh, (laughs) sit down, get comfortable get into a, a point and click adventure game you can save the lucas arts ones you can save at pretty much any point come back to just enjoy that's it. what yeah. i need give it there's a no <laughs> there's no dying in it you can't go wrong you can't soft lock yourself you play at your own speed if you really get tr- if you if you get stuck just try everything on everything and you'll eventually progress <laughs> this is like it's a so hard point though, and click it? adventure game support group uh well the internet this is the problem it's so hard now not to not to get a little bit stuck and get your phone out and have a look whereas in you know back in the day you would try everything with everything combine everything with everything and see if it works but it's a little bit too easy now to go and look for a solution and uh this really brings us on to our third answer from tortor six and it's another LucasArts game, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I played it on my 386 with VGA graphics. Now, um, before that, you had Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And the thing about Fate of Atlantis was, A, it was a bit weird because it was never a movie. So they just went off and did whatever they wanted to do with it. Um, but B, it was a generational step between the last crusade and the fate of Atlantis. You could really see a step up in the music, the art, um, just everything. It was, it just felt like progress. Um, and it played well too. Yeah. Um, Chris, should I ask, (laughs) have you played this one? (laughs) Dave, how about you? (laughs) I I have played it. It's a great game. It's, it's fantastic. I'm sure I heard something, maybe I'm wrong here, but was there talk about this being the plot for an actual Indiana Jones movie? Did, it was. Was, was that, was it a proposal? Was it, was it a, was this a proposal for a movie first and then they made a game or did they like the game? Someone will tell us in the comments, I'm sure, but it really is a good game. The plot's great. It feels like proper Indiana Jones. They've really got it nailed. It's, it's a great game. Um, you missed out on this one again. <laughs> well it sounds a lot better than um what was the fourth indiana jones movie crystal skulls what was it what was the full title crystal skull yeah yeah indiana it had jones to be better than skull. that yeah it had to be better than King- that. kingdom of the crystal skull was it kingdom who knows see we don't know because <laughs> it was not <laughs> worth remembering <laughs> jump in the fridge yeah um I was, so I was just trying to have a quick look to see if we could find some history on it um it says uh, it was a sequel to Last Crusade. Most of the staff at Lucasfilm Games were occupied with other projects such as Monkey Island and The Dig. That was another fun one, The Dig. Um, yeah, uh, the, the the producer um, had experience as a producer and writer of feature films and had only made two video games. Uh, mm. And... He wanted to create a game based on Indiana Jones and the Monkey King slash Garden of Life, a rejected script. It sounds like Indiana Jones was just in a weird place back there and they didn't really know where to take the series next with the movie. LucasArts had probably paid a lot for the license and just said, well, we're going to make something. (laughs) Mm. We're going to get our Mm. money's worth. So here it is. And um, Indiana Jones has always adapted so well to video games. Um, you know, you could essentially say that Tomb Raider is a complete ripoff of Indiana Jones. Uh, oh, yeah. But then you had Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine, didn't you? Which was uh, Indiana Jones ripping off Tomb Raider in a way. And um, unfortunately, it wasn't as good, which was really sad. I really wanted that game to do well. 
but um yeah it was out tomb raided <laughs> so thank you everyone for uh, contributing to our community question of the week and uh we've got another question for you this week so our community question for this week, and once again, if you'd like to contribute, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, look for the pinned question of the week. And this week it is all about MAME memories. What was your first experience of MAME? What were your favorite memories of MAME? Just anything at all really to do with MAME. Tell us all about it. Tell, it, tell us why it's special to you. Have you built a cabinet of your own? Uh, can you give Chris any tips on his MAME cabinet? Um, how did that work out for you? It's all about MAME. Just tell us anything. Favorite games, favorite experiences. Um, we'll, we'll flesh out the question a bit more in there in the pinned post. So go and have a read and let us know your answers. Um, and, and I must say, before we end the show today, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed your input today. And if so, we'll, um, we'll have to get occasional guests once in a while to uh, give us stories from their corner of the world. So thank you for listening. As always, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. It's goodbye from him. <laughs> it's goodbye from me. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been, it's been thoroughly painless. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That's been a lot of fun. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.